You're listening to the Substandard Model. A guy came up to me the other day in Tesco's and said, you're like a monster to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday I googled on my phone the words homeless poisoning. Up until this point, we've been doing fake science. Yeah, this is real science. Anyone who actually wants to do science, don't think it's just like, you know, the Scottish invented sex and the Beatles ranked together. The real science is what's coming next. <clears throat> so where do I start with this? I had an idea. I was in the shower earlier today, freaking out. As usual, it's another podcast day. So we have to, I had to think of three facts, right? Yes, so I'm going, yes. shit, what are my three facts? What, what's interesting? What's interesting around the world? And I was like, Maxwell's equations. I've been doing a lot of this in, in stuff. For those of you who don't know, Maxwell's equations are basically the equations from physics, which describe uh, the interaction between electric and magnetic fields. Job done. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I think I, I was going to start with fields just in general, because I think the core, the core part of Maxwell's equations comes from an understanding of what a field kind of looks like. Scalar fields and vector fields. So I suppose if we start from a graph. Okay, I love those. Well, we've got what, in a graph. What kind of graph are we talking? We're just talking y and x line, right? Because a field, in a sense, okay. is just a 3D version of this graph. Another way of looking at it is, okay, so if you've got a graph and it's this little uh, normal distribution, let's say, little hump on the graph, which is like a smooth curve that goes and peaks in the middle and then goes back down at the end, right? So zero everywhere mm-hmm. apart from that hump. Um, and then if we wanted to make a 3D version of this, we would make a little hill, right? Mm-hmm. Where instead of you've got you've got y and x is your 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 coordinates, let's say your coordinate space, and then the height z is the height of the hill, and you've got a hill shape, right? Yes. That would be what I would describe as a field, a scalar field in 2D space, let's say. A scalar field in 2D space, okay. Because there's no direction to the height of the hill because it's all in the same direction, right? So it's just the magnitude of the height of the hill that's important, right? right. And your coordinate in 2D space, the y and x, let's say you're in 1, 1, x equals 1, y equals 1. Let's say the height of the hill at that point is 10 meters, right? So at that point in space, yep. your scalar field is 10. And then you go to the middle of the hill, it's the highest point, and you're at 0, 0, and it's 20 meters tall, Right. And then mm-hmm. at each point in space, each y and x, you get a different height. That's what a scalar field is, right? Mm-hmm. For a vector field, how do, I, how do I make it seem cool? You could do, there's a way of getting a vector field from a scalar field, which is really nice, quick one, and I think it will help with this explanation. You can take, bear with me for now, the gradient yeah. of the scalar field. We'll later talk about this. You know, you can do Dell and Nabla and, you know, that'll lead into like Laplacian operators and whatever, but we're not touching that for now or the grad, okay, nice. whatever, right? We're just, we're just going to say the gradient, you know, gradients on graph. It's the slope of the graph. If you take the gradient of your scalar field, this hill, it's the, it's the, the slope of the hill. That's easy to understand, right? And the cool thing about the slope mm-hmm. of the hill is the slope of the hill's got a direction as well as a magnitude. So the steeper it is, the larger the magnitude, the less steep it is, the smaller the magnitude. And the slope can be going up the hill. It can be going diagonally up the hill, diagonally down the hill, diagonally, you know, uh, wherever, right? It can be going horizontal. You can have a gradient of zero because you're traveling around uh, what's called an equipotential line, which basically means that 
the uh your 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 height is not changing right if you walk mm-hmm. around in a circle around the hill you don't go any height so your gradient's zero right right so that's that's a vector field because you've got different directions which have different magnitudes so what you can have with a vector field is you can have a point one one like earlier where the height is 10 right and mm-hmm. the gradient to the point of one one the magnitude and direction of the gradient varies with what angle you're looking at around point one one. And what you can right. actually do is there's a, there's a grad function, which is what you do for vector fields. And the grad function is basically, it's like the dy dx, the gradient function of a graph, but it's a function that is dependent upon the, the direction because the slope varies with what direction you're looking in. Right. So that's a vector field. Direction and magnitude at different points. Scalar field, just magnitude at different points. Following me up until now. I'm following. So what we want really with Maxwell's equations is to describe the the shape of this vector field, the properties of this vector field. You want an equation that translates between the coordinates in space, your X and your Y, and you want it to give you the direction and the magnitude of the force at each point. Mm -hmm. So how can we do that? Well, we can choose a point X, Y, and we can just do that grad function. We can do a thing called divergence. We can do a thing called curl. And it will spit out different values or different functions at this point, And then that can show you what the field looks like at that point. Gauss's first law. So the first of Maxwell's equations is, is Gauss's law. And what Gauss's law essentially says is that, let's say we've got a charge just sitting there, electric charge, and you've got this electric field that permeates out to infinity. All of 3D space is affected by this electric charge. Obviously, the further away you get, the less affected it is. So it's only really relevant looking at it around the electric charge, right? Because the the, the strength of an electric field is proportional to the distance away from the charge. The, the force is proportional to the square of the distance. The way Gauss's law works is that they use a thing called a Gaussian surface which initially yes. to me was confusing because there was like, what is the Gaussian surface? It's like, well, you choose the Gaussian surface. The Gaussian surface is basically you want to enclose the charge. And what I mean by that is basically a box or a bubble. You want to make sure that the entirety of the charge is enclosed inside this surface. It's like you cling filmed this charge, right? And the only condition mm-hmm. required for a Gaussian surface, only condition is that the charge is fully enclosed. And what that means is you can't have the charge sort of half in, half out. No part of the charge can be touching the walls. It needs to be completely enclosed, completely surrounded by the Gaussian surface. And there's a thing called a surface vector. And a surface vector you can get by doing, <clears throat> you can get it by doing a cross product between the partial derivatives of, with respect to two different directions on the surface of it. And then you can get a general equation for a surface vector on the thing. Point is, what it is, is it's a vector that points at normal to the surface all over the Gaussian surface. So generally yes. people choose Gaussian surfaces, which are easy to produce surface vectors for, because then your equations are easier to resolve. And what it says is that the flux or the direction of the electric field lines, thinking back to our vector field, the direction of them and their magnitude, mm-hmm. if you add up all of them that pass through this Gaussian surface, find the dot product between the electric flux field line and the surface vector. You multiply them all out, you get a value, boom. What does that value mean? By the way, a dot product is, is where you multiply two vectors together. Um, it's called a scalar product sometimes because what it does is you get two things which have got direction and magnitude and it gives you just a, a scalar, just a, a magnitude. And that magnitude is basically how, how aligned they are. 
So if you take a dot mm-hmm. product between two vectors which sit on top of each other, the magnitude of their scalar product is the the lengths of them times together. But if you sit on, if you take the scalar product of two vectors which are completely at what ninety degrees to each other, completely opposed, then their dot product's actually zero. And then any angle between them being aligned, sitting on top of each other, and ninety degrees mm-hmm. to each other, you get a value between zero and the total product of the two magnitudes. So it's basically how similar the vectors are to each other. So you take all of the similarity between all of the flux vectors and all of the surface vectors, you multiply them all out, you get a value, boom. What does that value mean? This is where it really becomes beautiful with Maxwell's equations. That value is directly proportional for all Gaussian surfaces around all sets of charges to the amount Mm -hmm. of charge stored inside in Coulombs. So if you stick in one electron, take a Gaussian surface around it, do that whole surface integral, measure the dot product of all the flux vectors with the surface vectors, add all of them together, it equals 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 coulombs divided by a, a factor called epsilon naught, the permittivity of free space, but we ignore that. And what's cool right, is if, right. you, if you were to chuck in a proton, so I'm up, this is a question for you, Sam. If you okay. had this electron, you've got the spherical Gaussian surface surrounding this electron, completely enclosing it. You chuck in a proton and it flies in, attracted to the electron, sticks, sticks onto the electron, let's just say, right? And they both stick onto each other in the center. What will your surface vector dot product with all of your flux vectors now equal? You fire another proton in, which has got exactly equal charge, but the positive version of it. So it goes in, sticks onto the electron. You've got this Gaussian surface surrounding it. They don't need to like lie on top of each other. They can sit next to each other, but the Gaussian surface surrounds both of them. What is the total product of all of the uh, dot products? One would presume zero. It is exactly zero. Which right, brings cool. me on to the second law, which is Gauss's law of magnetism. Gauss's law the second, this time with magnets. Can you think of mm-hmm. what the case would be for magnetic flux around a magnet, given that the magnet has to be fully enclosed by the surface? If you were to take a Gaussian surface around a magnet... And instead of electric flux, it's magnetic flux this time. Wait, can you ask that again? So what would I expect? Like You've got a magnet, a bar magnet, north-south, right? right? North-south. Right. You take a Gaussian surface in a sort of sausage shape around your yeah, bar yeah, magnet, yeah. right? And you take the sum of all the product, dot products between the surface vectors and the flux vectors around the whole of that surface around this magnet. I'm imagining, imagining it. I'm imagining it. Right. What is that the arrows. equal to? I want to say zero again. Why is that, Sam? Because on either side of an either pole of the magnet, they're directly like opposite the other pole of the magnet. They're going in the opposite direction with the same magnitude, I would presume. So yeah, so they like, cancel. Can- yeah, right. they cancel. If you were to take a Gaussian surface, let's say around just the north end of the magnet, can you say a why we can't do that, and b what that would give us? They would give us, in theory, one, I guess, but the fact that we can't do it... Well, not one, but, like, well, maybe one. It, it will give you a value, we... yeah. You get a yeah, north value. But like... It would say, locally, the magnetic flux is north. Yes, that's... That, well, yeah. As yeah, opposed to I positive suppose, and but... negative in, in charges. I'm not sure why we can't do it. I mean, presumably there's a... Is there not... It's just definitions. 
Oh, fine. I mean, I would guess that is, there's a cutoff in the magnet where it goes from north to south, where like where the you know like the direct the dipole of the individual you know spins or the ferromagnetic things or whatever uh, domains are surely aligned, right? Like, is there not a place where you can just like cut it off and take the north? I'm not sure why you can't do it. Why you can't create just a north a magnetic monopole? I mean, you can in some conditions, I guess. The problem with magnetic monopoles, I think this is a nice way of saying it, the north supports the south. I s- okay. So there being a north part of the magnet creates the south part of the magnet, and there being a south part of the magnet right. creates the north part of the magnet. It's like a bi-stable yeah. situation where they're both... I would be too unstable if it was... Yeah. Well, surely the reason you can't you do the Gaussian surface around just the north is just because it's not a closed surface. It's, it's less complicated oh, than you thought, because oh, okay. the magnet goes through the... There's a thing that they've done to create magnetic monopoles as a little tangent. And that's where mm-hmm. they, you know, in semiconductors where you create a hole or you create. A, yeah. So what they do is they create a little magnet. It's the same thing as a semiconductor and you create it in such a way that you've got a hole of magnetism instead of a hole of charge, like in a semiconductor, the hole's going to have a local northness, right? And then the next of the hole, yeah. you're going to have a local southness. And what you do then mm-hmm. is you flip a magnet in that hole. Then if you flip one of the magnets, it removes the local northness from where it is, right? Because it puts a south part in. Mm-hmm. Then that northness moves by one. And so what they do is they flip loads and loads of magnets to move the north part of the hole as far away as possible from the south part of the hole. And then looking at mm-hmm. it locally, you've just got a local northness. And then miles and miles away, you've got the local southness, which is, an, in fact, supporting this local northness. Right, but you, but you can get it so it's so far away that you can actually ignore it, and that's their sort of virtual magnetic monopole. But in in theory, it's not magnetic monopole. You can't create those. So that's Gauss's law of magnetism, which is that the the sum of the dot products between the flux vector and the surface is equal to zero for magnets, because the flux is always going to go the direction of field lines is always going to go from north to south. So if you think of it, if the field line leaves the surface somewhere going northwards i.e it gives a positive or a northness flux right so you get a positive Mm -hmm. uh sum you get a positive product between the surface vector and the the flux vector then it must always loop back and give the exact opposite negative vector as it comes back into the south magnet there's a symmetry Mm -hmm. in that sense right so what this is actually called in vectors in vector calculus is divergence this product, this sum of this products between the surface vectors and the flux vectors. And divergence mm-hmm. is, is, is basically a measure of the local sink or sourceness of the fields. So if, imagine instead of a, an electric field, we had a, a fluid like water. Mm-hmm. If you were to put a fountain of water inside of a Gaussian surface, the measure of water flux passing through the surface per second would be positive. It would be a source, right? It would mm-hmm. be producing water. It's the same thing as a positive charge. It's like it's producing field lines that are passing out through the surface. If if instead you put a sink inside of it, like an actual bathroom sink, the water's flowing in mm-hmm. and draining down the sink. So you've got a negative divergence and the flux is mm-hmm. going negative the opposite direction from the surface vector. So you get a negative value, which is why yep. for electrons, where the field lines go towards the electron like a sink, you get a negative charge. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Now imagine like the proton and electron case. If you put a fountain next to a sink, like in a tap and a sink, then the net mm-hmm. passing through, you, the water level is not going to change. Right, 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 right. So what you can have is like you can that. have, let's say we've got five protons and four electrons. 
five taps, yeah. four sinks. What you're going to get is a net. Uh, water level is not going to change for four of them, but on that fifth one, there's a little bit extra water. So you, what you get is a net. The divergence is just equivalent to that of one proton. So you can think of those protons and electrons neutrifying each other, just like the north and south in a magnet do. I see. Right. Conceptually, that makes sense. Obviously, in maths, there's yeah. a lot more integration and calculus to do. Faraday's and Ampere's laws. Mm. Now we get onto the sticky end of Maxwell's equations. You get Ampere's mm. and Faraday's law. So okay. far, we've had an equation that describes the electric field, and we've had an equation that describes the magnetic field. But as we all know, electric fields can cause magnetic fields and magnetic fields can cause electric fields, but only when they're changing. Mm -hmm. Faraday's law, what you have is if you were to take, a, let's say, uh, instead of a Gaussian surface, we just take a line and it's a closed loop. It's a closed line. So that means that one end of the line has got to connect perfectly to the other end of the line. It's like a string. The string has always mm -hmm. got to be tied. It's always got to make a loop, a circle, right? And then you put this loop just in space. Then let's say we put a wire inside of this loop. So you've got this loop surrounding this wire, mm -hmm. and then we put a current through the wire, and the current's got this varying electric field, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that along this loop, we generate a magnetic field. The, yes. the mechanism of that is a little bit leading into special relativity, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that right now. This is, this is the part of physics where you get where one law is because of the other law, but then conversely, the other law is because of that law. You get to a point where it just becomes true. <laughs> because of other laws which are also self-defined on the original law that you were trying to define, right? Right, okay. It's like, it's like logically, yes, yes, this is true, and this is also true, and they rely on each other to be true. But that's the case, so that's how the universe is. But anyway, okay. so you've got this magnetic field that's generated by this wire that passes through it. And if you take the, the piecewise, let's break up this string that we've got going around this wire. If you just take up the direction of the string, each point, the tangent to the string, and then we just take a dot product between the tangential vector of the string, an infinitely small tangential vector of that, of this closed loop. And we take a dot product between that and the magnetic field generated by the wire. We find that it's exactly proportional to the current flowing through the wire. I should say that again. Closed loop around a wire. The wire's got a current going through it, right? The varying current, right? So you've got a varying electric field created, right? The magnetic right. field generated by this wire is is can be defined by saying that the the dot product between that magnetic field and then pieces of a loop a closed loop around that wire dot product with them to you sum all of them together unless it's a mm -hmm. conservative field which means it equals zero it's proportional to the uh electric field that the rate of change of the electric field the exact same yeah. thing is true for a magnetic field is the rate of change of magnetic field. If you had a magnetic field going through a loop, is proportional to the electric field around a closed loop. Mm -hmm. um, there's a thing called curl and curl's the thing in the equation. Previously with divergence, we had what's called the Nabla operator. And the Nabla operator is, you can look at it as, 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 a, as a vector, but it's, it's an, it's a, in reality, it's an operator. And what it is, is basically 
when you put the Nabla operator on something, it takes the X component of that thing, and then it takes the derivative of the X component with respect to X. Then it takes the Y component of that thing, your vector field. Then it takes the derivative yeah. of the Y component with respect to Y, and then the Z component takes the derivative with respect to Z component with respect to Z. So basically, you get the derivative of each component with respect to their axes. Okay. You don't. You won't get the derivative of the Y component with respect to X. That's the key part, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when you do a Nabla operator dotted with the um, field, a dot product. And the dot product, I said earlier, it was proportional to the magnitudes of the two vectors times times by cos of the angle between them, which means that it's zero mm-hmm. when it's 90 and one when it's, when it's zero. That's for the divergence. So in divergence, you mm-hmm. take the derivative of the X component with respect to X, right? By the way, divergence, it makes sense because... If you think about the way that the field goes in all directions, the amount that it's changing in the X component, the amount that it's changing in the Y component, the amount that it's changing in the Z component basically gives you a 3D representation of the amount that it's growing in 3D space, mm-hmm. like a source or a sink. The way that you derive it's interesting. You take a cube at a point with one of its vertexes at a point. Then you say, what's the flux through this side of the cube? What's the flux through this side of the cube? What's the flux through this side of the cube? say it's all proportional, and then you take a limit as the cube tends to zero, and then you take an infinite sum of all the cubes inside of a surface. Mm-hmm. Curl's slightly different, and curl's said to be the cross product between this Nabla operator and your field. Right. And what the cross product does is the cross product gives you a perpendicular vector, which is interesting because before we just got a scalar, the divergence. Yes. And the thing yes. about the curl is that the curl can be both clockwise and anticlockwise. The curl. And what it said is a measure of the magnitude of circulation density in a field. So if you think of a field which has got, let's say, a river, going back to the water analogy, if you've got a river of water flowing, and it's flowing faster in the middle of the river compared to the banks, because the banks have got slightly more friction, if you were to put a leaf in the river, it would start spinning as it gets close to the center. Because one side of the leaf is now being accelerated by faster moving water compared to the other side. So even though all the water is mm-hmm. moving downstream, the leaf will still start to rotate because one side's moving faster than the other. The right side's moving faster. The middle of the river side is moving faster. Yes. So what you would have there is a a, a, a curl. You would have a, a you would have a positive circulation density at that point. Going into the actual vector calculus between behind what the mass of that is, um, it, it get, what curl is is it gives you a vector that's perpendicular to the surface that you're taking the curl in. Right. And if you think about a cross product of vectors, it's a, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to explain what it looks like in, in person. But what you end up basically is a, is a, is a sum between derivatives. If you take cross product with Nabla, you get derivatives. It's a sum between the derivatives of the other two components from the component that you get. So the X component of a curl vector, this perpendicular vector, the X component of this perpendicular vector is equal to the difference between the derivative of the Y component with respect to Z and the Z component with respect to Y. So you'll get a thing that's perpendicular to the YZ plane, i.e. an X component, right? And it's proportional to the difference of the rate of change of both of them. And if you do that for all of those components, the Y component's difference between X and Z and Z component's difference between Y and X, then what you end up with is a vector whose magnitude is dependent upon the rate of change, either clockwise or anticlockwise of the field, the way it twists, how much it twists. Mm-hmm. Going back to Maxwell's equations, what you get is the, the the twistiness of an electric field is proportional to the rate of change of a magnetic field around it. And the twistiness of a right. magnetic field is proportional to the rate of change of an electric field around it, right? Mm-hmm. 
Nice. Quickly about the river analogy. That's why if you change a magnetic field, i.e. if you go from a strong magnetic field to a, a weak magnetic field, right? You change the amount mm-hmm. of magnetic flux. Even if you're going in a magnetic field that's going from A to B, it's a strong magnetic field that's going from A to B, and then you turn the power down, and it's a weak magnetic field. You'll still induce a current because like the river, even if it's going downstream, the speed causes a change in the circulation. Right. Okay. Anyway. Right. Okay. The speed of light. Speed of light. We've got all four Maxwell's equations. We've got the the fact that uh, electric fields can act as sources or sinks. The fact that magnetic fields, yes. if you close a magnet, it can never be a source or a sink because it's a magnet. It has to have a north and a south in one. Um, rates mm-hmm. of changes of electric fields created by curls in magnetic fields and rates of change of magnetic fields created by curls in electric fields. If you start with um, the rate of change of magnetic field is equal to the curl of an electric field, because you've also got this other equation which shows that the curl of a magnetic field is equal to the rate of change of an electric field, the curl of the electric field is equal to the rate of change of the magnetic field, right, Sam? Mm-hmm. Take the curl of both sides of that equation, you get the curl of the curl of the electric field, is equal to the curl okay. of the rate of the change of magnetic field, right? I suppose it would be, yes. Take the derivative out, you get the rate of change of the curl of the magnetic field is equal to the the curl of the curl of the electric field, right? Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait for it. Then you sub in the curl of the magnetic field for the other equation, which is equal to the rate of change of the electric field. So now you get the rate of change of the rate of change of the electric field is equal to the curl of the curl of the electric field. Right. Okay. Hold, hold on sense. to your horses. So now you've got mu naught epsilon naught times the second derivative of the electric field with respect to time, proportionality constants, which happen to be mu naught and epsilon naught because those are included in the mm-hmm. equation, mm-hmm. is equal to the curl of the curl of the electric field. And the curl of the curl of the electric field is actually equal to something called was the negative of the Laplacian operator times the electric field. And the Laplacian operator is basically Nabla squared. Okay. And Nabla squared. <laughs> If you think, if you remember back to what Nabla is, it's the derivative of each component with respect to that component, right? You can't take the derivative of the Y component with respect to X. It's the derivative of each component with respect to itself. Right, yes. Right. So what it when you square that, because of the way the Nabla operator works, is it's not a value. So you're not squaring the magnitude of that derivative. What you're doing Mm -hmm. is basically applying that operator twice. Okay. So you get the derivative of the derivative. So what you get is the second derivative of the electric field with respect to space is equal to mu naught times epsilon naught times the second derivative of the electric field with respect to time. Right. Explosions should be happening in your brain right now. They, I mean, I'm, if you I'm do getting, physics, this, like is the, this is the bog standard, beautiful wave equation, which says that the second okay. derivative of something with respect to space is proportional to the second derivative of something with respect to time. The second derivative of something with respect. Okay. Yes. I see how we, I mean, I see how we got there. I'm yeah, feeling yeah. like we're getting somewhere. All right. Are you ready? Well, the yeah. way if we look at it as a 1D case instead of our fields, because the fields are hard to think about, 1D case is a string. You vibrate a string, so it's a sine wave, right? Going along a mm-hmm. string, right? And the height of the sine wave is Y, and the length along the string is X, and the time at which you're measuring the height and the length along the string is T, right? We oui, wee, oui, 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 oui. Right. So a time T equals zero, Y is one for X is zero, right? Mm-hmm. Lovely, right? Then if you take the second derivative of y with respect to x mm-hmm. and the second derivative of y with respect to t, 
Mm-hmm. So you get the rates of change as the rates of change of y as you vary x and y as you vary t. There's a proportionality between those two second derivatives, which is one over v squared. Yep. So going back okay. to our oh, equation oh, okay. of the second derivative with respect to e and the second derivative with respect to t, then you get one I over v squared is equal to epsilon naught times mu naught. And oh my back, God. In, back in the 1890s, Maxwell, yeah. who also happens to be Scottish, said that mu naught epsilon naught is equal to one over c squared. Right. So one over c squared is equal to mu naught epsilon naught. Basically, if you rearrange that for c, speed of light, or v in the, the wave equation, you get the exact speed of light. So uh, back when Maxwell did it in basically 1900, he got within 3% of today's estimate for the speed of light, which means that what you can do is you can basically measure the electric field that you get around a a magnet or the magnetic field you get around a wire, Mm -hmm. work out the values for mu naught, work out the values for epsilon naught, multiply them together, divide square root, right? Yeah. You get the speed of light. That's remarkable. So you can just take it from any circuit. Yeah. So you can make a circuit. You can you can do an experiment now to work out the speed of light using a circuit, assuming Maxwell's equations are true. That's that's smart. So that's how they work it out. Good good Jesus Christ. Well done, Maxwell. Christ on a bike. You listen to it. It's Gauss's law, Gauss's second law, Amper's law, and Faraday's law. Right. So a lot of people who aren't Maxwell. So guess what Maxwell did? That's true. Maxwell took he yeah he took everyone's laws stuck them together and made a small addition to Amper's law and then they became Maxwell's (laughs) equations yeah but he gets yeah but I mean I think that's fair enough he did the first the the first stage of unification yeah yeah you know and then there's the the people who do the others but I think he was the he was Uh he's a big deal Maxwell I like I like Maxwell and now I like him even more it took a while but it ended up with the speed of light so each individual ant is kind of very stupid. P for proton, which is 2.793 mu n, and mu n equal to negative 1.93 mu n, 1,836. That was a rough podcasting there. Jeez. And essentially, it's potential energy, like like all things are. Pineapple eats you. Do you regenerate into a world of pain? (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Do people say the of? Okay, okay. Uh, How are we doing this? Okay, basically. That's because the whole of Enceladus, the whole moon, is being squished and squashed by Saturn. I'm going to be honest, it looks like the Death Star. Sam, have you heard of glass frogs? Oh, yeah. They're great. No, you better not know this about glass frogs. Is it the thing that came out this week about why they're so see-through? Oh, fuck. No, I think... I don't know. I don't know, Henry. Do we all have aphantasia? Do you know what microtubules are? Uh, I mean, I can imagine. It's a, it's a small tubule, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, s- spot on, yeah. <laughs> you would have an electron field. We're yeah. not experts. Let's just put it out here. Because we've been recently alerted by my mum that some of her physics professor friends may be <laughs> listening to this podcast. Um, and that that made us feel bad. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, Bert Henry's mum is always, is always crucial for a good podcast, I think. Hi, right, Sam. Henry. You're listening to the Substandard Model.